Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Watch Out for Greed, the Parable of the Rich Fool. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 4th, 2013. In his 1987 film Wall Street, Director Oliver Stone created an icon of excess with the character Gordon Gecko. Gecko was a rapacious corporate raider played by Michael Douglas, who won an Oscar for Best Actor for his performance. Twenty-five years later, people still remember Gecko's infamous address to the Teldar paper stockholders. He says, The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. In greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Gordon Gecko was a fictional character, but he has real-life counterparts. On May the 18th, 1986, for example, Ivan Bosky advised the graduating students of the Berkeley Business School, quote, Greed is all right, by the way. I want you to know that. I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. Ayn Rand wore a gold dollar sign brooch. At her funeral in 1982, a six-foot-high flower arrangement of a dollar sign stood by her coffin. Rand disparaged self-sacrifice in favor of self-interest. Her 1964 collection of essays was called The Virtue of Selfishness. She still has followers like her close friend Alan Greenspan, Paul Ryan, and John Allison, the former CEO of BB&T. In 1991, the Library of Congress and the Book of the Month Club conducted a survey that asked respondents to name the most influential book in their life. Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, was second only to the Bible. Watch out, says Jesus in this week's Gospel from Luke 12. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. To punctuate his point, Jesus told the parable of the rich fool, who built bigger barns for his increasing wealth. His smugness has passed into our everyday lexicon, eat, drink, and be merry. But he died that very night, left his wealth to others, and never learned to be rich towards God. Greed is the intense desire to possess more than we need. We normally associate greed with money, as Jesus did. But we can be greedy for many things, for food, fame, 
6, or power. Christians have always identified greed as one of the seven deadly sins. And notice there's a horrible paradox in greed. It's never satisfied by what it desires. Rather, the opposite is true. When money increases, observed John Cassian, the frenzy of covetousness intensifies. Greed, in other words, is insatiable. It always wants more than a person can accumulate. Jesus invites us to oppose greed with renunciation. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. If you believe Jesus that it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, or the Apostle Paul that the love of money is a root of many evils, then renunciation isn't as bizarre as it sounds. Nor is renunciation a utopian ideal or unattainable standard. Many Christians have lived this ideal, most notably the monastic communities. Nonetheless, we've prescribed the ideal not for everyone and for good reasons. We read in Acts how the first believers had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Financial generosity was combined with social generosity. Personal piety and social justice weren't separated. The early believers subverted normal social hierarchies of wealth, ethnicity, religion, and gender in favor of a radical egalitarianism before God and with each other. In the words of this week's epistle from Colossians, here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. As the decades rolled by and the movement expanded, grappling with greed became more nuanced. In his masterful new book, Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West, Peter Brown of Princeton documents the evolving attitudes and practices of Christians regarding wealth. He rejects two common myths. First, that of the primal poverty of the early Christians. That was true for some people for a little while, but not for all. And second, although the church gained new privileges under Constantine, the emperor did not usher in a time of new wealth in the church. That didn't happen until the year 370 or so. Until then, 
Those that Brown calls the mediocres or in-betweeners were the church's biggest supporters. The middling people between the super-rich and the oppressed poor. Artisans, small farmers, small-town clerics, tradesmen, and minor officials. Brown describes these people as the solid keel of the Christian congregations through the 5th century. Only in the late 4th century did significant money enter what had been a church of insignificant wealth. What followed was an explosion of writing about wealth by luminaries like Ambrose, Augustine, and Jerome. There were no easy answers to the hard sayings of Jesus. Brown documents the various ways believers grappled with greed, from radical renunciation by the super-rich, the anti-wealth of the ascetics, care of the poor, the everyday generosity of ordinary believers, and finally, the clerical stewardship of massive wealth as God's providential gift. As with food and fasting, although all believers have a single goal, like the avoidance of gluttony and the cultivation of self-control, it's impossible to commend a single rule to reach that goal because of different personal circumstances, age, stage in life, health, family matters, and so on. And so we don't prescribe total renunciation of wealth, sex, or food for every Christian. That's a voluntary and personal choice. After all, many wealthy women supported Jesus in the early monasteries. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who buried Jesus. Greed is also psychologically complex. Cassian observed how monks who had renounced great wealth got angry over a small sum or a lost book. Monks who practice renunciation agreed that the possession of money wasn't the ultimate problem. What mattered most was one's disposition desires, or attitude. The renunciation of money is an outward sign of the more important inward struggle. The monk St. Hesychus put it this way, He who has renounced such thing as marriage, possessions, and otherworldly pursuits is outwardly a monk, but may not yet be a monk inwardly. Only he who has renounced the impassioned thoughts of his inner self, which is the intellect, is a true monk. It's easy to be a monk in one's outer self if one wants to be, but no small struggle is required to be a monk in one's inner self. Similarly, Maximus once said, the war which the demons wage against us by means of thought is more severe than the war they wage by means of material things. Battling greed is no easier for a monk or more difficult for a banker. Jesus' call to renounce greed is for all Christians, not just a spiritual elite. Exactly how you do that 
is a personal and complex spiritual discipline based on God's unique call on your own life. Be on your guard. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a slender volume by Rob Gieselman. The title is A Walk Through the Churchyard Toward a Spirituality of Christian Death. North Charleston, South Carolina, Create Space Independent Publishing Platform, 2012. The book is 119 pages. Rob Gieselman practiced law from 1987 until he was ordained by the Episcopal Church in 1999. Since then, he has served as a parish priest in Maryland, Tennessee, in California. He begins and ends his book with two dreams, which is to say that this book is deeply personal and not a detached treatment about death. The first dream was one about his father, 23 years after he had died when Gieselman was a teenager. The second dream that concludes the book is about his wife, Laura, who died from complications after surgery in 2003, after 10 years of marriage. Gieselman was 43. The lessons shared in this book were forged in the fires of the pure pain of grief following his wife's death. He writes, it wouldn't be so hard if it hadn't been so good. Gieselman also shares firsthand stories about other deaths he has been privileged to share in the course of his ministry as a priest. The basic takeaway, he says, is that people don't just leave when they die. They don't leave at all. That's because, in some mysterious way, God in Christ conquered death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10 Gieselman's book reminded me of similar memoirs of grief by C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed, and Nicholas Volterstorff, Lament for a Son. It's a good resource for people who are experiencing the dark valley of the shadow of death. Rob Gieselman, A Walk Through the Churchyard For film this week, I review a movie called Girl Rising, 2013. According to the movie website, girlrising.com, this documentary tells the stories of nine extraordinary girls from nine countries, written by nine celebrated writers from the girls' native countries, and narrated by nine renowned actresses. It intends to show the strength of the human spirit and the power of education to change the world. The girls who are featured face horrible obstacles and injustices, but through education and hard work, they overcome their challenges. 
The documentary reminds me of the book and movie versions of, called Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristof and his wife Cheryl Wu Dunn of the New York Times. Although this film, Girl Rising, is specifically about the role of education for girls. When my wife saw Girl Rising, she was both heartbroken and inspired. The life-changing power of an education came through loud and clear. This film is not in wide release, so you'll have to go to the movie's website to find a theater and date near you. Better yet, join their cause and host the film in your own community, church, school, or business. Once again, Girl Rising. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted another poem from our Celtic Poetry Collection. It's called The Gospel of the God of Life. The gospel of the God of life to shelter thee, to aid thee. Yea, the gospel of beloved Christ, the holy gospel of the Lord. To keep thee from all malice, from every dole and doler. To keep thee from all spite, from evil eye and anguish. Thou shalt travel thither, thou shalt travel hither. Thou shalt travel hill and headland, thou shalt travel down, thou shalt travel up, thou shalt travel ocean and narrow. Christ himself is shepherd over thee, enfolding thee on every side. He will not forsake thee hand or foot, nor let evil come anigh thee. The Gospel of the God of Life, one of the 25 Celtic poems and prayers on our website. Thank you for joining me at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 4th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.